Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Welcome back to Oof in the Childhood, a podcast of the Disney animated movie order they were then watching them for the first time in decades and reacting to them with a modern eye. This time, I'm talking about 1981. Just in case you missed the childhood trauma of the 1940s, it came back! In 1967, a book called The Fox and the Hound by Daniel P. Mannix was poised to win the Dutton Animal Board shortly after its release in September of that year. Even though it hadn't won the award yet, Walt Disney Productions snapped up its books before the ink was even dry on its first edition. Then, as per usual, they put it on the shelf and ignored it for a decade. In 1977, after Wolfgang Rieserman finally got around to reading the novel, he decided it'd make a great movie because his kids owned a fox once. No, really, that's why he decided it was a good story. Originally, they planned to make the film about several hound dogs and a single fox, but eventually whittled the cast down to a buddy film with just two leads. The film's producer, Ron Miller, intended this to be another project for Animation Team B, the junior animator. But Ritherman didn't trust them with such a film, so he sent it up to Animation Team A, where the last of Disney's nine old men, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, and Cliff Norberg were animating their final film. They all decided to retire in 1978, midway through the animation of this film, so the junior animators were brought in to finish it up. Notably, a new artist named Tim Burton entered the studio to create storyboards for the film, and a brand new animator named John Lasseter joined the junior. As the film dragged on, the junior animator team had more and more put on it, and the public had started to notice. In July of 1978, Business Week published an article titled, Can Disney Still Grow on Its Founder's Dream?, in which they quoted a former senior exec from the studio saying, quote, The company is creatively burned out. The execs are so square, you can't roll them downhill, end quote. The company was all over the news for more than that, though. Disney had appealed the California District Court's decision to hold Sony and the manufacturers of VHS tapes liable for copyright infringement. In 1979, after two more years of litigation, the district court upheld its previous decision that the manufacturers were not culpable for their customers' actions, even if they did use those products for copyright violations. Meanwhile, Don Blues had grown tired of the Disney changes. In later interviews, he would say that the exec team cared more about making money than good movies, that they'd do anything to make a movie cheap. On September 13, 1979, Bluth's 42nd birthday, he drove up in his pickup truck, 
handed in his resignation, and told any junior animator who wanted to affect change in the animation world to get in his truck. According to interviews Gary Goldman, Bluth's business partner, gave after the incident, Don tendered his resignation by saying, quote, We couldn't make a change here, so maybe if we go out there and compete with you, it'll make you work harder. End quote. Years later, even Goldman admitted that that statement was pretty naive. Ron Miller was furious. He ordered any employee tendering their resignation that day to get off the lot by noon, then watched as Bluth proceeded to drive off the studio lot with 13 junior animators, about a third of those staff. If you want to hear more about exactly what happened to Don Bluth after leaving Walt Disney Productions, the Patreon episode this month is on his first full-length film, The Secret of Nim. And now that I've started reading about his career, there might be a lot more Don Bluth bonus episodes. I mean, wow, there's just a lot of drama there, too. Anyway, with their animation cut down by a third, Disney had no option but to change the release date of The Fox and the Hound from Christmas 1980 to summer of 1981. The veteran animators were forced to do quality control and cleanup animation by themselves to release the film for $12 million, or the modern equivalent of $34.7 million. When they finally released the movies, the critics were conflicted. The New York Times said that it broke no new ground, but that it was cheerful and like old-fashioned Disney movies. However, the critic also said that the film's climax was probably too scared for kids and that their parents probably just wanted to throw them out at the theater without worrying about them. Ah, oh, the 80s. It was a different time. The Los Angeles Times said that the animation was great, but that the story played it safe, protecting young audiences from pain and loss. Time, however, saw a bigger message in the film and praised it for talking about prejudice and racism in a way that kids could appreciate. Roger Ebert said that though the animation was good, it was definitely a more political movie, in line with Rescuers. Theatergoers seemed to agree with the more positive parts of these reviews. By the end of its theater run, The Fox and the Hound grossed $39.9 million in domestic box offices, or $115.5 million today. At the time, it was the highest-earning animated movie ever. Internationally, it performed as well, earning $43 million, the equivalent of $124.4 million. It was also re-released in 1988, which brings its lifetime box office earnings to $63.5 million, which is about $292.1 million when adjusted for inflation. So, was The Fox and the Hound worth all that praise? Or, when we look back at it with a modern eye, do we see something different? Stick around after this short break, and I'll watch it and let you know. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. That's right, I don't just host a podcast, I listen to at least three episodes a day of my personal favorites. So, if you want to do a little good in the world while you listen, you should check out the new Humbly app. Humbly is a podcatcher that inserts a short ad between episodes you were already going to listen to, then donates the money from that ad to causes you choose. For example, when I listen to an ad on Humbly, the money can go to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, Teach for America, and the NAACP. I can even check my stats to see how much I've earned for my causes overall. So, if you're already interested in listening to podcasts, why not listen to them on Humbly and earn a little money for those in need? Have you ever wondered what shows are like in foreign countries, but the language barrier is what stopped you from giving them a chance? My name's Maggie, and I host the podcast, Have You Seen It?, where I talk about TV shows from countries all around the world. If you're like me, you spend more time on Netflix looking for something to watch than actually watching something. So if you don't want to spend time scrolling through Netflix or even Hulu, check out my podcast for some show suggestions. I talk about the plots, tell you who the cast is, what I liked and what I didn't like about the shows, and I also throw in some fun facts about each country, tell you where in the world the show takes place, 
how close they are to any other shows that I've already covered, mention any cultural differences or similarities that I noticed, and my favorite part are the words and phrases that I picked up while watching these shows. You can check out Have You Seen It on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and most other places you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OfficialHYSI, that's O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L-H-Y-S-I, and make sure to like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash OfficialHYSI. Let me help you find your new favorite show. This episode's cover art is by Wolfpup Arts, who posts her adorable art on Instagram. You should go check her out. I've linked her Instagram in the show notes. I'm always looking for new art for my movie episodes, so if you or someone you know would like to be featured, head over to oofmychildhood.com fanart and send it to Okay, first things first. I remember loving this movie when I was a kid. Before the Disney Renaissance happened, which was a little after I started developing my first favorites, I would have told you this was my favorite Disney movie. That said... I don't think I've watched it since the 1990s, so I'm ready to be shocked and appalled by something in this movie. All I remember is that there's a fox, a hound, and a song about being best friends. Just remember, it's not just your childhood I'm ruining here. Let's go! The Buena Vista distribution screen stays up so long I had to check that it wasn't paused. That's always going to set great expectations. We have credits over a watercolor forest with wind and birds playing over. Otherwise, very quiet. There's a Squeaks the Caterpillar in really big font in the credits, and I have no idea what that's about. As we continue to pan, we start to hear dogs bark, and the music builds more and more tension until a fox carrying her kit appears and is running from the baying of the dogs. She runs through a meadow and along a river, across a rocky outcropping and onto a farm. All the while... The music is getting more and more anxiety, and Al watches as she tucks her kit behind a fence post, and then gunshots ring out. The owl comes down to speak to the kit, who is rightfully terrified. Big Mama the Owl comforts the kit, who is just beyond adorable for a baby who just lost his Big Mama knows he'll need someone to take care of him, so she flies off, leaving him alone. She comes across a woodpecker and a little bird looking in the woodpecker for a caterpillar. She brings them back to the kit, and they put their heads together. The little bird has an idea, and sends the woodpecker, whose name is Boomer, to knock on a door. A woman, who, as a child, I thought of as elderly, but is more like retirement age, comes out and sees Big Mama and a little bird holding up her pantaloons, and she runs out to scold them, and they drop the pantaloons onto the fox kit. She sees this baby pupper, and he is the cutest thing, so she scruffs him and decides to She feeds him with a bottle and says he's a little toddler and decides to he's going to make her less lonesome. Aww. Meanwhile, a man with an epic mustache drives a jalopy up and pulls a bag out of the back. He has a surprise for his old dog named Chief. It's a puppy. In a bag. Yay. He's no bigger than Chief's paws, but he'll grow up to be a big ol' hunting dog. Chief is initially annoyed by this pepper, but pretty soon they cuddle up together and go to sleep. Back at Todd's house, he's playing with Abigail the cow's tail. Todd barks to ask for milk, and yes, foxes bark when they're domesticated, and I know that because I have a mild obsession with foxes because of Robin Hood. Todd sees newly hatched chicks and goes to look at them, which causes the mother hen to freak out about a literal fox in the hen house. The hen chases Todd, and Abigail kicks over the milk bucket. The lady scolds him until he gives her puppy dog eyes, and she realizes he has absolutely no malice in his actions and sends him out to play. Outside, Todd sees Boomer and the little bird, whose name we learn is Dinky, and goes to play with them. Boomer's voice is the same as Tigger's, 
Now that I'm watching all these movies so close together, I can't stop hearing all the voice actor crossover. Boomer even laughs the same as Tigger. Dinky and Boomer are looking for the caterpillar again. It appears Dinky is the brains of the operation and Boomer is the brawn. There's a comically violent scene in which the caterpillar tricks Boomer into pecking off the end of the branch he's sitting on. Todd is disgusted by a worm for breakfast and follows a butterfly away. Chief and the puppy, whose name is Copper, are eating. Copper smells something he's never smelled before. Chief says he's just smelling fat back from the master's house, but Copper insists it's something else and he's going to find it. Todd is chasing his butterfly through a log and sees Copper and asks him what he's smelling. Copper says he's tracking a new scent, then realizes it's Todd and does the cutest little bay in the whole wide world. Todd suggests playing hide-and-seek and sends Copper to count before he runs around a stump and hides on top. Big Mama sees and sings the song I remember being about best friends. This is one of the songs that randomly gets stuck in my head in everyday life. Copper's master calls him and scolds him for riding off. But the next morning, Todd calls Copper out to play. He sneaks past Chief and they frolic in the forest. Copper, you're my very best friend, and you're mine too. Todd asks if they'll always be friend, which is the classic heavy-handed Disney foreshadowing. Copper's master is pissed that he's straight again. He says Copper can't be a good hunting dog if he doesn't learn to mind. He whistles for Copper, who runs off, promising to meet Todd tomorrow. But the next day, when Todd finds him, Copper's been tied to his barrel. Todd says they can play here, but Copper says chiefs mean that they can't. Todd gets super curious and starts to investigate the sleeping Chief. His ears aren't as big as Copper's, but his teeth sure are. Chief begins to dream that he's chasing something, which is very interesting to Todd until Chief realizes he smells a fox and begins chasing Todd all over the property for real. He chases Todd into the hen house and startles all the chickens. The master runs out in his long underwear and repeatedly tries to shoot Todd, resulting in blowing up his mailbox before Todd escapes across the river, almost drowning Chief in his own barrel. The master takes off in his car, so Todd runs to his caretaker, who is taking milk jugs to market. The master shoots at her car, resulting in destroying her milk cans and spilling her milk, which seems to be a theme. She gets mad and gets out of the car to scream at him. It is here that we learn that the master's name is Amos Slade, and that he's a trigger-happy lunatic who is standing there in his underwear. The lady takes his gun and shoots his radiator, then pushes it into his chest. She empties the gun by firing it into the air. Amos starts yelling at Todd's caretaker, whose name we still haven't learned yet, but I'm tired of calling her that. I just looked it up, and the character's name is the Widow Tweed. I say we call her Judith. Anyway, Amos tells Judith that if he ever sees Todd on his property, he'll shoot him for real. He also calls her female so many times I had to check if he was a Ferengi. In the next scene, Judith is keeping Todd inside, and Amos is going on a hunting trip while cursing that meddling female for shooting his radiator after he shot her income. They have a lovely relationship. If this was a Hallmark movie, they'd get married. It's not a Hallmark movie. Amos is going to teach Copper about hunting. I mean, at this point, though Copper hasn't grown in the cartoon, he's probably about six months old, and that's prime training time. Chief relegates Copper to the back of the jalopy, and Amos takes them out to hunt till spring. Todd watches his friend leave, and Copper howls a farewell. Big Mama comes down and asks Todd what he'd do if he ran into Chief, then reveals that the incident with the shooting was literally yesterday. Anyway, she says it's education or elimination, then does kind of a spoken word song about Chief having a hunter and his hunter will kill Todd. They explain that Copper is going to be trained to track foxes. He'll be Todd's enemy. Boomer and Dinky open a shed that reveals traps and furs mounted on the wall. Todd doesn't believe that Copper will turn to his enemy. He believes they'll be friends forever. The leaves fall and the ice sets in on the river, and snow covers the ground as time passes. The caterpillar peeks out from the snow and makes his way into Judith's house. 
Dinky and Boomer try to catch him, but he makes his way into the keyhole and in front of her stove. Realizing they can't catch their worm, Dinky and Boomer fly south for the winter. I'm sure there are no other connotations to these two male friends who live, eat, and travel together. None. Back with the dogs, Copper loves the snow, but buries himself in a drift. Chief is so done with- In this scene, Copper hasn't grown at all, but in the next scene, which is the same winter, he's much bigger when Chief sees a rabbit. Copper sees it too, and chases the rabbit away. Amos's winter cabin has at least six pelts outside it, and in the next scene, Copper is about full grown. He's calmly sniffing and turns in a direction that Chief doesn't agree with, but Copper bays at a tree, scaring the quail out. By the end of the winter, Amos's jalopy is full to the brim of dead animals and Copper is sitting in the front seat of honor. Big Mama comes out of her winter tree and finds a full-grown Todd as Dinky and Boomer return from the south. Todd's voice is broken, and he has a collar and a floofy tail that Boomer wears as a fur stole. Again, no further connotations to these birds. At all. Judith takes the plant where Squeaks the caterpillar has been living outside and can't understand why it died. Like, it has a huge caterpillar that she can't see for some reason. Dinky and Boomer chase Squeaks to a glass power insulator, then electrocute themselves trying to get at him. Amos is singing his way back to the house. Chief's grumpy that Copper is up front, but Amos says that Copper wouldn't have been as good of a dog without him. Todd hears Copper's howl and is like, hey, he's back, and Big Mama's like, look at all those animals he helped kill. But Todd still believes in his friend's moral compass. Copper will still be his friend. He does promise to be careful and only go when Chief and the hunter are asleep. Copper and Chief are back at Amos's property, and Chief is grumpy about the pup being friendly. He tells Copper that smellin' and trackin' ain't good enough. He's got a think-ness. That night, Todd comes out of the bushes to see Copper. Copper says Todd can't come over anymore or they'll be in trouble, but Todd wants to make sure they're still friends. Copper says they can't be, but he does say that, to Chief, Todd's fair game, which indicates to Copper he's not. Chief wakes and begins to bark getting Amos into the action. The dogs chase Todd through the landscape until he hides under a woodpile. Chief runs past, but Copper smells him. As Amos comes up, Copper says he doesn't want to see Todd get killed and that he'll give him a pass this one time. He runs off in the opposite direction, letting Todd escape onto the train tracks. But Chief catches him and chases him onto a trestle until a train starts coming. The train knocks Chief off the trestle onto the rocks and into the river below. Copper runs up as Chief dies. He sees Todd on the trestle and blames him for Chief's death. If it's the last thing he'll do, he'll get retribution for his mentor's death. In the woods, Judith's calling for Todd. She finds him and wraps him in a blanket. At Amos's place, Copper looks like the saddest doggo. He's blaming himself for letting Todd go. Amos has his gun and is stomping out to Judith's house. Todd hears him before he bangs on the door. Amos just calls her widow, which doubles down on me. Amos says, that fox of yours almost killed Chief. So maybe Chief isn't dead. Judith looks really worried. There's a picture of Todd on his first birthday and a cake the next day, and Judith, with the saddest look in the world, picks up Todd. Amos sees her leave as he's bringing the wood. Todd is a happy pup, while Judith has a voiceover poem about her memories with Todd. And look, I write these scripts while I'm watching them. And during this part, I had to pause the movie because I was crying so hard I couldn't see my script. She says she's been so happy with Todd, but now she'll be alone with his memory. It's heartbreaking, really. Judith takes Todd out to the woods and gives him a big hug. And, oh, by the way, this is not how to reintroduce an animal to the wild, but I mean, there weren't a lot of wildlife rehabilitation centers back then. As soon as Judith dries off, it starts to rain, and Todd is left to his own devices. He watches ducks swim and quails protect their young. 
There's absolutely a scene from The Sword in the Stone where a squirrel jumps from branch to branch. Todd looks for a place to hide and finds four raccoons in a rock cave and a grumpy old badger who's mad because he didn't know anyone lived there. A hedgehog, who sounds like Piglet, invites Todd to stay with him. Amos comes out and tells Copper that Judith's taken Todd to the game preserve, which, hey Judith, good call there, it's the best you could do. Amos is going to poach the fox that hurt his old dog. And that's problematic. From inside the house, Chief looks out and then goes back to his pillow with a cast on his leg. You know, all things considered, just a broken leg is a hell of a win from that fall. As Chief says how grateful he is that he isn't sleeping in a barrel, I realize that his voice is the Sheriff of Nottingham. Amos brings Copper in, completely ignoring Chief, instead showing Copper a steel trap by demonstrating how it snaps a stick clean in two. Like, yikes, that would be Todd's leg. Oof, right in the childhood. Back at the nature preserve, Big Mama is looking for Todd. She makes some comments about losing weight before spotting him. After calling out, the fox turns around and it's a vixen named Vixie, because this story made no attempts when it came to women's names. Like seriously, we have three women's voices and they are named Big Mama, the Widow Tweed, and Vixie the Vixen. What the hell? Big Mama tells Vixie that Todd's new in the forest, and Vixie, a frickin' fox, asks what a fox looks like. I'm sure that's me being specious and that she knows all the difference. Also, I paused while I was writing that, and the lines on Vixie's tail lack any definement. She's just, like, half-drawn. I might be getting caught up in this. Big Mama tells her Todd is young and handsome because that's the best way to enlist a woman's help is to tell her that the man you're looking for is marriage material. Yep, definitely reading too much. The ploy works because Vixie volunteers to help find him. The camera finds Todd and Piglet the Hedgehog sleeping in a hollow. The Hedgehog stretches, poking Todd with his spines, which startles Todd out of the hollow and into the badger's den again. He tries to apologize, but Badger's gonna badger. Piglet the Hedgehog tells Mr. Digger the Badger that Todd's new around here, and in true old white guy fashion, Mr. Digger tells Todd to go back where he came from. Todd walks off brokenhearted as Big Mama and Vixie come upon him. Vixie says maybe she can help, and Big Mama's like, I'm gonna marry the two of you. Big Mama goes to Todd and tells him to cheer up because the forest is full and gestures at Vixie who is looking at her reflection framed in flowers. That's another fox. A lady fox. And Todd is instantly twitterpated and Vixie looks at him with eyes larger than they should be. Todd walks up to her practicing his pickup lines but when he gets there settles on hi. They talk over each other before he asks name and starts acting a little drunk. Vixie says the stream is full of trout and asks if he can catch one. Of course he can. This fox who was raised by a human and who has never been in the wild is going to catch a fish first try. This results in as much hilarity as you'd expect before Todd catches a stick. Vixie and the birds start laughing because it's hilarious and he gets mad and calls her an empty-headed female. I think I'd forgotten all of the second part of it. Vixie's pissed that he's insulted her and Big Mama scolds him for being a jerk. Then she sings a song about being yourself around someone you're attracted to, gives you better results than showing off. The two foxes cuddle together and Dinky and Boomer take the hint and alone. Vixie shows Todd the forest. They count quail babies and she plans how many kits they're going to have. Literally minutes after meeting, they end up in front of a waterfall and a full moon. Amos is looking at a sign that says no hunting on the game preserve while holding his wire snips and his gun. He cuts the barbed wire and sets copper to find Todd. Copper smells around the forest before pointing at a spot next to a pond. They set traps to meet him. Meanwhile, Todd is coming out of a burrow after spending the night with Vixie. Insert eyebrow waggle here. He's never been happier. We pan back to Amos, who has set four traps all in a line. I'm pretty sure that's not good hunting practice, but also I've never used a steel trap, so I don't know. He says the devil himself couldn't have done better. 
Maybe not the bar to be setting yourself at, Amos. Dixie tells Todd it's too quiet as they head toward him, but he ignores her. As he gets closer to the hidden traps, he starts to get worried. He hears Amos's gun click and somehow manages to avoid all of the traps. He sends Vixie back to the burrow before Copper comes upon him. They bare their teeth at each other and Copper chases them into their den, snarling and- The two try to go out back, but they're trapped by Copper until Todd bites his paw to scare him out. Amos sets dry grass on fire to smoke them out, but they brave the fire and go out the back, outsmarting Copper and Amos. Using techniques that he learned playing hide-and-seek with Copper, Todd shows Vixie how to mislead the nose and cross a waterfall on a tree. Copper and Amos look around and end up waking the angriest grizzly bear you've ever seen. Amos can't shoot him, so he's chased down the slope and into one of his own steel traps. He deserves worse. As the bear closes in, Copper attacks. He fights the bear as Amos tries to get the trap off his leg and go for the gun. The bear knocks him out, and Todd hears Copper scream. He can't leave his friend to die, so he goes back and starts attacking the bear. This leads to another epic battle before the bear breaks the dead log bridge and plummets them both into the waterfall. Todd swims up out of the bottom, hurt and panting, as Copper runs up. The two friends look at each other, realizing that Todd was still willing to put his life on the line for Copper. Amos cocks his shotgun. Copper gets between the gun and his friend and looks Amos in the eye, refusing to back down. He gives him literal puppy dog eyes, asking him not to do this. I'm not sure what Amos realizes here, but his face softens and he scratches Copper behind the ears and they go home. Before Todd and Copper limp off, they look at each other, knowing that their friendship, while never the same, has been restored. Time passes and we have Dinky and Boomer looking in a tree hole for squeaks, but he's become an iridescent butterfly, changing his wing colors and dazzling them. Big Mama hears yelling, and we see Judith bandaging Amos's leg while he whines about how much it hurts. She says he's mending fine, and he'll be back to himself any time, but also could he not be back to himself, like, ever? Chief makes fun of Amos, quote, making a big deal over a hurt leg. Copper takes a nap, and the movie has a voiceover of the two pups saying they'll be friends forever as we see Todd and Vixie overlook the farm together. The end. Okay, so, again... This movie was my favorite movie before the Disney Renaissance happened, and the first part is really great. You have two kids from different worlds coming together and forging a friendship. You even have a story arc where they recognize that they're different now, but there's no ill will. But then, the last third of the movie really goes into deep turmoil about separating, okay, I'll call her the Widow Tweed for the recap, separating the Widow Tweed from her companion and creating strife in what was a strong friendship. All Copper can see is that Chief was hurt, not that Todd was trying to keep living. He's blinded by his upbringing until he sees Todd sacrifice himself to rescue him from a bear. And though I saw some reference to this in the reviewers, I'm not really sure this is the movie because, I mean, it is from the 80s. This movie could be a message about overcoming your roots without destroying them. If this was turned into a movie about humans instead of dogs, we could have Copper raised in a racist household and rising above the messages that he was taught. But as a dog, he doesn't have the agency to leave those messages, only to be friends with the one fox he's ever going to meet outside a hunt. So maybe that's what I latched onto as a kid. Two completely different people learning that they like each other despite their differences and the way they were raised. The problem is that the end of the story is terrible. Copper goes back to being a hunting dog. He will hunt and kill other foxes at Amos's behest. Amos isn't going to stop thinking that non-domesticated animals are evil, but he'll let that one fox live that one time because his dog stood between him and the gun. And in the meantime, Judith is left to take care of the wounds he suffered while trying to kill the fox she raised like a child. 
It's actually freaking terrible. Nothing changes for any of the characters in the end. There isn't a redemption arc. There's a we let Todd go arc. And then we go back to the status quo. I think I'd have preferred to let the bear eat Amos. But I want to know what you think. Do you watch The Fox and the Hound with fond memories and warm feelings? Or do you see it as a denouncement that anyone is able to change ever? Let me know on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OofMyChildhood. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, those ratings and reviews affect almost every other podcatcher. If the app you're using right now has a rating system, please consider rating and reviewing there as well. I also have a Patreon page where you can contribute monetarily to the podcast. For just a dollar every month, you get an ad-free version of the regular episodes one day early. And for $5 a month, you get a bonus episode that discusses the history and commentary of other childhood favorites. This month, I'm talking about a movie that I have a lot of questions about why my parents showed it to me. 1982's The Secret of Nim. Patrons also get a say in what bonus episodes I'm making for the future, so if you want more of my rabbit hole research, that's the place to go. I also have single bonus episodes available at oofmychildhood.com if you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription. You can also find mugs, aprons, and t-shirts on the website. My theme music was composed and played by Sean Rudolph of Let Music Be. For more information on that studio, you can visit their website at letmusic.be or check the show notes for an easy link. You can find transcripts for each movie episode on my website, and if you check out my YouTube channel, I have captioned video versions of each episode as they're published. I do my best to provide YouTube videos and transcripts at the same time as each podcast episode is released, but if this one isn't up yet, you can always check on my website for an update and a link to the appropriate video. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you come back each week to discuss Disney through modern eyes. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me. I release a new episode every Monday through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many other podcatchers. So until next time, keep the magic alive. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.